0: You're listening to a recording from the 2017 Mockingbird Conference, held at St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. Hi, I'm Adam. I'm a polytheist, not formally, not officially. Uh, Formally, I'm a Lutheran pastor in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which sort of counts, Uh, so I as a matter of business and personal conviction adhere to creeds which say I believe in one God. Uh, That said, I have a sort of a long-standing interest in gods. Um, If you look up there, right here, I picked out an image. Those of you who have at some time or another possibly even seen me comment on something on the website, you may have noticed a funny-looking image I use as an avatar. It is taken from the cover of a book called Deities and Demigods, which was a Dungeons and Dragons supplement from the early 80s. Uh, Sort of funny rules for this game, created by a Lutheran, Dave Arneson, and an eventual Roman Catholic, Gary Gygax. But the rules provide a kind of structure for talking about gods within your games of Dungeons and Dragons. And what the book does, yeah, it could be just treated as a silly, you know, role-playing game supplement, but I prefer to think of it as one of the great works of comparative mythology. And I think about it that way because what it does is it takes various sort of pantheons of deities from different cultures and normally in world history, although it takes a bunch from fantasy worlds as well, and sort of organizes them. Provides rules for each one of these and structures and so you can look at them and see how they compare and how they don't And you notice that a number of the real world ones, well it's interesting that they have sort of a supreme sky god And different gods sitting in roughly the same places in relations to each other That's kind of funny I think I first picked up this book when I was about eight years old, I got into that stuff a little bit young But I've been interested in gods and mythology and how these things fit together for a long time. I was also raised in the church. I'm a pastor and I'm the child of a pastor. What I'd like to talk about today is how to have one God. That's my title. How to have just one God. And I'd like to start by looking at two fairly important texts which might establish us on a little bit of a firm footing. So the first one, from Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And a second from Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now in the West, one God is assumed. And when I say one God is assumed, I mean for practically everyone, regardless of how many you say you believe in. Agnostics will tell you, generally speaking, they don't know whether there is a God. They will very rarely explain themselves by saying they are not sure how many gods there are. Atheists, as a rule, say they don't believe in God. This is how they speak in the Western world. Sometimes they will make the further point, and this is a nice rhetorical move, that we all disbelieve in gods, and they just disbelieve in one more than many of us. 98% of atheists, that's not a researched number, specifically don't believe in the one god that these verses refer to. That is the god they have no time for. And quite a few don't believe even more specifically in a denominational variant of the same. A Roman Catholic atheist is often as not still very much a Roman Catholic. That is the God he has no time for. If somebody says they're religious, we hardly ever ask, which of the gods do you believe in? Which would be a great question, ask that to a stranger today. Or how many gods do you have? You'll hear people say they're looking for a new church. Sometimes you'll hear somebody saying they're exploring various religions. I have never in my life heard anyone say they are looking for a new God. It's just not how we speak. Christians, Jews, Muslims, and a surprising number of pagans of one sort or another will say God or one God. In a world of open questioning of religious doctrine, that can feel as if it's sort of a safe point of agreement. Well, there's, there's one God, right? Comforting, if not very substantial. But agreement on the number of the divine doesn't say very much about devotion. The Christian experience, and I mean the lived Christian experience, is surely that we regularly say there is one God. We say this in the creeds. We say this even if we're in churches that don't recite the creeds very often. We all think this, but the fact of the matter is our hearts tend to speak otherwise. These verses sharpen that distinction between what we think and our experience because they demand that the hearer have just one God, just this one God, the Lord your God, the Lord our God, it is a matter of personal and communal significance. And we get some of the same radical exclusivity in Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, to my argument, having just one God is not a trivial thing, not a thing that can be assumed. In Scripture's view, it was Israel's fundamental problem. And so I think the fundamental problem of human life, it's not the only way to phrase that problem, of course, but it really is the problem. To dig into this problem, I want you to carefully observe an act of sincere worship. There's no sound, but you don't need it. This is my son in his younger days. Call it a year and a couple months ago. When he'd get fussy, when he'd get upset, when I couldn't stop him crying any other way, I would bring him out to the side of the road and we would sit and watch cars. And one of the first words I remember him saying, after Dada, but not very much after Dada, and well before Mama, was car. So we learned two things from this video. Human beings are built to have gods, since neither his parents nor anyone else he was spending much time with cared at all about cars. And this behavior starts very, very young indeed. Our worshiper sits by the side of the road and he waits for the god to arrive so that he can cheer its coming. This is his deepest wish. If I put a palm branch in his hand, we'd recognize that. So the only thing that would comfort him, not me, not his mother, just the cars. The only reason that he didn't dash out into the road to join himself to the object of his devotion, to return to a sort of primal, inorganic state, I think Freud called this the death drive, is that he couldn't yet walk. Now he's almost two, and he runs everywhere, and he has to be restrained to keep from bolting out into the street. Because I'm still quite sure if he could just charge into a car and merge himself with it, he would. So you can imagine that traveling around New York with him is a lot of fun. Each car is the arrival of the God all over again. Some are bigger, some are smaller. Because we live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, just outside the city, And down that road to the right is Costco. Amish buggies come clomping around along that road as well. And he loves those. They're amazing. But however different the vehicles are that come down the road, big trucks, little cars, buggies, they are all the God. Number doesn't matter so much. This is John's liturgy. This is what he lives by to participate in the divine procession down Greenfield Road in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You might think this is an exaggeration. Is it really worship, what he's doing? How can those cars be gods? It might help if I defined a god so you can see what we're working with. Behold, an illustration of a god. This is as accurate as I can make one. A god is a bucket, a container, a container for faith, that's all. There are no gods without faith and nothing else but faith makes a god. A god might be big or small, visible or invisible, personal or abstract, strange or familiar, angry or glad. Could be any of those things, but what it must be is a container for faith. Probably not going to be able to read that. I will read it to you. I think it's spraying all over the place. This is from Martin Luther from his Larger catechism, part of his explanation of the first commandment. A God is the term for that to which we are to look for all good and in which we are to find refuge in all need. Therefore, to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. As I have often said, it is the trust and faith of the heart. And listen for these words, trust, faith, believe. The heart alone that makes both God and an idol, for these two belong together, faith and God. Anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say, that is really your God. To have a God does not mean to grasp him with your fingers or put him in a purse or to shut him up in a box. Rather, you lay hold of God when your heart grasps him and clings to him. To cling to him with your heart is to entrust yourself to him completely. All people have set up their own God to whom they look for blessings, help, and comfort. For example, the pagans who put their trust in power and dominion exalted Jupiter as their supreme God others who strove for riches, happiness, pleasure, and the good life, venerated venerated Hercules, Mercury, Venus, or others. They all made a god out of what their heart most desired. Idolatry does not consist merely of erecting an image and praying to it, but it is primarily a matter of the heart. So this is Luther's teaching on this matter. Uh, John Calvin, another reformer, agreed. He called the human heart a factory of idols just a marvelous phrase in a bit we'll get to why Luther maybe comes out a touch better on this issue than Calvin but on the initial diagnosis they're both right now this is a monotheist he has a bucket and he holds tight to his bucket he does not want anyone to steal his bucket well then that doesn't seem so hard. He's got one God. Go and do like the walrus. (laughs) Except I'm, I'm not sure what the walrus would do if I actually took his bucket when he wasn't looking and gave him a different one. I suspect he would accept it. My son has a stuffed Ewok that we got him at Disney World last summer. My wife insisted on it. And he loves that Ewok, and its nose is perpetually sort of deformed and wet because he sucks on it. This is just a wonderful, wonderful thing. But we realized early on that he might destroy this Ewok or he might lose it. And in order, so in order to prevent one of the great childhood tragedies, we bought a second one and stashed it away. And if Ewok is ever lost, we still have Ewok. Even worse, what if another animal stands in for Ewok? That's happened before, and he's gone with a different one at bedtime, and it's been okay. What this tells us is that the gods, to some extent, are fungible. They can be exchanged. Faith in one can be transferred to another in surprising ways. We're not sure where it's going to end up. An obsession, an addiction, a passion can seem overwhelming until it is traded in for another. Now, after my son takes a bath, he gets lotioned up because uh, he has got a kind of a dry skin issue, and then he sprints away. And it is hard to get a good grip on a slippery, fat, little naked person. You need to really get, grab hold of him. The gods, in fact, are just as slippery, maybe more so, and without a handle, without a way to get a grip, we can lose track of them entirely. But handles are hard to come by. How do you get a hold of a god? How can you say, I have this god and not that god? Our attempt to number the gods is one such effort. So I've plotted this on a number line. It's so scientific you could have a march for it. Uh, I hope this is helpful. No gods, the beginning of the number line, seems to be something we understand. It's stable enough as a position. One god is clean and easy. Exactly one, no more, no less we'll get back to that And we get further out on the line and you might realize something's gone strange here ask around if any of you ever meet a person who believes that there are exactly five gods no more or less I will send you a prize this is true for almost every integer past one we know that the Trinity doesn't mean three gods I'm pretty sure uh, What about the twelve Olympians, though, right? There are pantheons where you say, well, there are this many. It's sort of true. The Olympians are, in fact, a good example. The Greeks had far more gods than that. I recently saw this one. Uh, This was a cauldron dug up in France with an image of the river god Achilles. I'm not really familiar with this god, but in this version he has three mustaches. And I'm a little surprised that he isn't more popular because that is amazing. The Greeks had as many gods as they needed. They were flexible. They were fungible as in fact the gods are for most pagans. Is the ruling sky god worshiped by that tribe over there the same as Zeus or different? Is Artemis of Ephesus with her many breasts the same as Artemis the virgin huntress? It doesn't matter. A god can be one or many, it's a god. So you may have heard the claim Thrown out there that, well, in India, there are 400 million gods. No one counted them. You could just as easily say there is one. Gandhi said that. Or that there are uncountably many. Plato, too, he can speak of God in the singular, or gods in the plural, an indefinite number. In fact, for the ancients, there is really not a tremendous amount of difference between a thing and the god of a thing. The sun god Helios, or the sky god Uranus, the names just mean sun and sky. In the cuneiform writing of the Sumerians, you put a mark next to a name to indicate that it's either a god or a heavenly body. This mark is called a dinger and it looks like a star. You just take your little stylus and push it into the clay until you've got this little star marker. And so you know that whatever sits next to it is a god or a thing in space because they're the same thing. A star is a god. A planet is a god. So why isn't the river a god? And every hill and every clump of trees and every city and every person when it comes down to it. Remember, a god is a bucket, just a container for faith. Each thing as trusted in is a god. But likewise, if you extend it, if you keep pushing it out there, the whole thing, The entire ball of wax, the universe, the force, what have you, is God. All one. The sum total. This question, is reality one or many is as old as the West? It goes far back in the history of our thinking. And it's fundamentally unresolvable. They are different ways of speaking about the same reality, unity or multiplicity. With God's, moving from one to arbitrarily many and back again is child's play. Once you start down that number line, you shoot out to infinity, and you can shoot right back again to one. But if we get that far, that one and many are the same, what about zero? There is an old theory, Max Weber's disenchantment hypothesis, Which suggests in one way or another the loss of the gods of spiritual powers of magic from the public sphere how these things have sort of drained out of our lives i think this simply isn't true i don't know much other way to say it if it ever was true it certainly isn't now the gods are not gone they're not even very well hidden we haven't stopped worshiping because faith has to go somewhere consider some of our great intellectual atheists those who have made really lasting contributions charles darwin on the left is one nikita khrushchev on the right is not Um, but i'm using him as a stand-in to an extent for marx i know that's not entirely fair to marx but bear with me for these god disappears it's true he's not there but the god just re-enters the picture under another name. Some fundamental reality or force, some power is invoked as the controlling matter of our personal reality. So Khrushchev, the famous quote, history is on our side, we will bury you. History isn't there a passive description for what happens. It's active, it's choosing winners and losers, it has a direction, it elects. We can be on its side, and the best thing is to be on the right side of history. Charles Darwin, who above all lays things at the feet of natural selection, his God is imminent in nature, it is true. But for all that, no less that which does the choosing. We could consider Nietzsche, who at the last tells us that we should learn to love fate itself, our fate. We didn't, needn't be so intellectual about the gods. Look at all of our non-god gods that we interact with every day. The grand abstractions, the economy, the market, the environment, science. We have marches for it. Is that a liturgy? You know the names of these gods they're not just abstract goods they seem to matter to us more than that they seem to control more than that we attribute more to them than that they are powers that determine that choose that set right and wrong the popular fiction writer neil gaiman who is a pagan who knows very well that the gods are still around us wrote a book about 15 years ago called American Gods, maybe a little more than 15 years ago, close enough. Anyway, TV adaptation debuts Sunday night on Stars. Should turn in, tune in. Uh, Gaiman observes that there are the old gods that we brought with us from the old world and the new gods that are all around us. Technology and plastic surgery and all of these powers in our lives So what about that disenchantment hypothesis? Well, at this point, it starts to look just like a cover story. It's a distraction from the truth that we have multiplied the gods beyond any possible measurement. Is there even a difference between zero, one, and many, or does the whole number line collapse and fall apart? Are the gods just too slippery for it? I think of the great philosopher, Baruch Spinoza, who proposed his famous God or nature as if they were exactly the same thing. Spinoza, an atheist, a pagan, a monotheist of some sort, he was of Jewish extraction, kicked out of the synagogue. Gods are slippery business. The intellectual handles we have attempted to attach to them, math and metaphysics, they won't work. So let's go back to our basic definition. A God is a bucket that holds faith. There's a name for the behavior that invariably follows from putting our faith in a given bucket. We call that worship. Worship is, in the end, just another failed attempt to put a handle on a God. This involves figuring out what the God is about and then offering it what we suppose might get us there. History can only be on our side if we put ourselves on history's side. And so if we know what history is about, that is class struggle, then joining the right side in class struggle puts us there. The crops will only grow if we offer the gods of rain and sun the things they desire. Fame, which is a bad substitute for being known and loved, only comes if we sacrifice our depth and our individuality to become empty images of the famous There's something to face up to about the gods we worship. None of them loves us. They can't, because they are all just narcissistic reflections. Our faith makes them, after all. So like the myth of Narcissus, the beautiful young man in love with his reflection who pines and dies looking at the one who cannot love him, we suffer for our gods because we make them and we pour ourselves into them and this is our worship and as such our gods can only demand from us and they can never really give since anything they had to give would be ours already our bad religion turns out to be just like our terrible relationships sometimes they're exactly the same thing so this worship handle for grabbing onto gods it's not only broken it's dangerous Entrusting yourself to something or someone is innately dangerous, and entrusting yourself to something that does not love you can be deadly. It certainly does not bring any good. Whatever you worship ends up ruling over you. It owns you and in a significant sense has already made a sacrifice of you. Sooner or later, it asks for blood. Not just the big sort of classic gods do this, the pagan monstrosities that might have directly asked for human lives, The little ones do, too. Career, beauty, my sense of myself as funny or popular or good, all of these make demands, and when they take the demands far enough, they crush us. Raising little children is hard enough. When they become little gods instead, angry projections of what we wish we were, of the futures we wish we had but know we can't have anymore, when they become ourselves done over but elevated to an unimaginable degree and we do this we pour ourselves into our children in this way then they become unmanageable and they will kill us if nothing else this should actually make us sympathetic to the stated goals of atheists because what they want is to see us freed from servitude to false lords, to gods who do not help. There is something noble about that, and we ought to admire it. It's futile, I think. Naive, but noble. This is uh, Toland man. He is in remarkably good shape for a guy who died between 2,300 and 2,400 years ago. He was strangled and thrown into a bog in Denmark. His neighbors did this to him. He was a human sacrifice to whatever gods provided for the people who lived there. Good gods, I suppose, benevolent gods. After all, they gave the peat from the bog and the life that came with it. The life of one is hardly anything to pay for the benefits those gods offer. So this man's neighbors killed him willingly. Their faith killed him, and it made murderers of them. not to belabor the point, but here are a few more. Uh, On the upper left, an image from something called the Gundestrip Cauldron, and it shows a god of some sort sacrificing a man. It tells the truth. In the middle, Aztec sacrifices, hearts cut out so that blood may be an offering and spirits may ascend to the heavens. On the lower right, human sacrifice in Hawaii, a practice which ended about 200 years ago. Again, all of these Willing practices. Let's get more modern. We have a contemporary example and a fantasy one, the same illustrator as the cover of the Dungeons and Dragons book, actually. I have sort of an irrational fixation on him. Uh, but they show the same thing the gods demanding what is their due. It doesn't matter whether we find God at the bottom of a bottle, or in someone's pants, or in the dream of an Islamic state or in some thing beyond our reckoning. We hand ourselves over willingly to whatever we think can choose us, can save us. But these things do not and cannot love us. Now lest we think that only crude primitive gods do this, we should consider some of our more enlightened ones. If only our atheist friends really could put worship to a stop, but they can't. One after another, they abolish gods only to establish new worship in their place, demanding that humanity bend its knee to another power. After all, Nietzsche did want us to love our fate. Fate doesn't love me. It's not good enough that fate exists. We have to give ourselves to it. Spinoza wants us to submit to reason the highest law. Darwin... Says that we should not only accept nature red in tooth and claw, but bow to this selection. How many millions were sacrificed over the last century to that monster history, which Marx thought he had gotten a handle on? These are not exceptions to the general rule of human life and worship. They are the rule, they are the rock bottom of what worship and gods are about. My toddler would willingly run in front of a car if he could. American Christianity is in a weird spot, it really is. There are large sections of it who would look at the orthodox church in the upper left with all of its marvelous painted images and see only pagan polytheism, uh, while failing to notice they have somehow put Hercules on a cross. I want to suggest that at least part of our problem is that we do not take humanity's basic paganism seriously enough, especially in the church. We dismiss it as demonic and therefore something having nothing to do with us, imagining that it is our part to contend against mechanistic atheism or secularism or something, and we fail to see how we, just like our neighbors, bend the knee to a thousand different gods even in our own sanctuaries. The whole earth is a temple, one way or the other. We are very religious in every way, as Paul said. The only question is what gods will be worshipped. And without any sure handle, we know the answer. A God without mercy, to whom we are bound to give and give, who is glorious indeed, but only ever at our expense. Now, what about the Bible? Doesn't it teach one God? Well, yeah, of course, but it's in the Bible that we see the standard handles for taking hold of the gods, our attempts to manipulate God into our own image, systematically and thoroughly broken. Consider even the word God as it appears in Scripture, El, or in the plural Elohim, We look at Psalms 86 and 82, they're kind of interesting. There's no question here about which God we should worship. These are monotheistic texts. But oddly in these two Psalms, how many gods there are in a general sense isn't actually that significant a matter. Right? Psalm 86, verse eight, there is none like you among the gods. That word Elohim. Psalm 82, God, Elohim has taken his place in the divine, that is the El Council, so there's the word for God again, he judges in the midst of the gods. Sometimes we get nervous about that, we don't know what to do with it. But again, this is, this is not a question of whom we should worship, but, how many go- but it is say, suggesting at least that how many gods there are in the sense of various entities isn't that significant a matter. Other places in scripture will say these aren't really gods, and that's fine. But these verses have bigger fish to fry. Likewise, I think about when Saul asks a witch to raise up Samuel so that he can consult with him. And then when Saul asks the witch what she sees, he says, I see a god coming up out of the earth. Not the Lord God, of course, but a god, the spirit of Samuel. If you want a really depressing passage, read Jeremiah out the 44th chapter. Jeremiah has been dragged off to Egypt and the people say that they will go back to worshiping the queen of heaven just as they did in Judah. And then they have the gall to blame the failure of, their nation, of the nation on the religious reforms that discouraged pagan worship. Judah and Israel were polytheistic nations. That is the reality of the Old Testament. All the years of saying one God didn't do any good god as a just as a term turns out to be a bit of thoroughly pagan furniture a foreign altar as it were what the bible speaks to is the condescension of our lord his stooping down so low that he would even inhabit this dangerous word god but he does not do this without first sucking the guts out of that term and injecting an entirely new content. If the Lord God is a God, he is a God unlike any other to whom this term has ever been applied. This gets more clear when we consider the absolute sabotage job that the Bible does on worship. Despite many pages committed to sacrifice and worship, to the things due to God, And despite the best efforts of Christians to make their worship indistinguishable from any old pagan cult, minus the blood and animal bits, the net effect, the grand thrust of the Bible's story is to completely undermine the concept of worship as it has been developed by the human mind. The Bible is against worship as we normally conceive it. It is against the gods because it proposes something absolutely radical. There is one who is not like us. He is not a reflection of us. He cannot be bought or manipulated or influenced. We cannot get on his side. We cannot join ourselves to him, give him anything, love him, or even stand to be in his presence. We do not want him. But he is the almighty, the one who chooses, the only one. And he is absolutely in love with us. Nothing compelled him to make us, or to bear with us, not reason, or the law, or necessity, or fate, or chance, or science, or history, or karma. He stands in relation to no other gods. But he has stooped down so low that for him alone, we have a sure handle. We can grab onto him. We have a place to grab hold. There is some, he is something definite. In this undifferentiated mass of so-called gods he is the one sure thing because he has given himself in a sure promise none of the other gods would do this they couldn't imagine it and that promise looks nothing like nothing less than the death of his son so long as we look about in the world for gods we're lost our religious activity our game of worship and sacrifice which spells death for both us and our neighbor, I think Simeon Zoll would call that sin, Uh, it cannot stop in this age. How could it? But if we could have one God, if we could actually have just one, who actually loved us, then we could stop. Then our desperate attempts to appease the angry gods we have made for ourselves could come to an end, and the sacrifices would be over. Having one God is not about counting at all. It's not about getting the metaphysics right or getting the worship right. It is about faith coming to rest in the only one at whom it can safely rest. The only God who does not ask for our blood but gives his own and pledges himself eternally to us the only one who is trustworthy. The gods we make cannot make promises. They can only demand blood for blood, gift for gift. But this one God simply promises. So this is how it goes. The one God, your God, must make a promise to you that you will be his own and stake himself on it until heaven and earth and me and you and all things hang from this single word. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and it will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. His own life is the pledge to us of that promise, nothing less. And that promise in hand, we find that something actually has changed. When we hear it, when it strikes our ears and enters our hearts, we have this one God. This is the only way to do it, to hear him in his word. Not just a handle on him, but him himself, he himself, there to be called on, there to care for us. And then we have no need to make new gods for ourselves. When this one dies for me, I die to all of the other gods, and this is the end of sacrifice forever. So we don't fussily count gods until we get to one, but no further. We don't theorize our way to monotheism, as if that mattered. We do not go plumbing the wells of our psyches. We preach Christ and him crucified. You knew all along that had to be the answer, right? Jesus, that's, that's the answer. He is the twilight of the gods. He is their destroyer. Even mighty death itself, the God to whom all things bend, isn't anything next to him. Jesus has done what Nietzsche only dreamed of, what Richard Dawkins, with his piddly little imagination, couldn't even dream of, he has actually killed off the gods and set humanity free. So then the gods become nothing to us, neither threat nor temptation. Empty, weak, and beggarly elemental spirits, as Paul calls them. Do they exist? Well, sure, some of them do, right? They must. Selection, history, science. For all I know, maybe Odin or Marduk are out there somewhere. It's possible. I can't say for sure. Sure. But I just don't care, because they are not gods over us anymore, not over me. We are free, and if we are free, then the things in this world that were always at risk of being turned into gods are not quite so risky. They can be creatures, servants, rather than lords. We can learn from them. We can even enjoy them. We can paint pictures of them and not get worried about whether it's idolatry because we do not have to bow to them. We can make shows on stars about them. We have one God. And because we have one God, we are free in him. Or I should say more precisely, our one God has us. Amen. Thank you.